Welcome to Making Resilience Cool, a podcast based on the resilience advantage, a 12-episode series created by the U.S. Resiliency Council with the generous support of Optimum Seismic. The program addresses what resilience means to our communities, businesses, and governments here and around the world. I am your host, Audrey Liu, a student at Cal Poly SLO and an aspiring architectural engineer. Working with the host of the series, Evan Reese, the executive director of the USRC, I've been deep diving into the rich archive of interviews with special guests from various fields such as business leaders, community leaders, architects, engineers, and experts in sustainability, sharing their insights on the importance of resilient design. Come along with me on my journey in learning more about resilient design and why it is so important in all of our lives. Episode 15, The Silver Lining. There's a saying, every storm cloud has a silver lining, and we're always hoping we could see what that is, that advantage that comes from a difficult situation. But when it comes to natural disasters, that can be challenging. Is there such thing as a silver lining when it comes to disasters, Evan? Audrey, when it comes to natural disasters, if there is a silver lining, it's that when people are suffering, charities, foundations, and philanthropies often spring into action to provide essential resources, money, food, shelter, clothing. But what if those same organizations provided resources before disaster struck? To make buildings and our infrastructure stronger and more resilient so much future suffering could be avoided. Camilla Seth is the managing director of the Finance Hub. She has over two decades of experience in developing philanthropic strategies to promote resilience and sustainability. She has great insights into how the philanthropic sector is rethinking its role in pre-disaster mitigation. Camilla Seth. I'm Camilla Seth. I work just outside of New York City and pre-COVID in New York City. I'm the managing director of the Finance Hub, which is a project um, that is very tightly aligned with the philanthropy of the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and their conservation program. I've worked for about 20 years, 25 years, uh, right at the nexus of finance and the environment. What is your main focus? So I've always worked on sustainability issues and on using um, the tools of commerce and finance to drive environmental change. What role does the philanthropy of the finance hub play? The role of philanthropy is to address the most significant, in some cases seemingly intractable challenges that we face as a human society. And so I think climate change, issues of economic justice, um, and a whole range of other other public sector issues are really the realm of philanthropy. And as people's awareness of the climate challenge and sustainability challenges has increased, so has the awareness and the commitments and activity of businesses across the spectrum, and specifically the the realm in which I work, the financial sector. So over the last 20 years, there has been significant change in the degree to which Philanthropy has been working outside of the nonprofit sector, but also with business uh, and communities around issues of sustainability and how to embed them into markets and finance. 
We are definitely seeing an exponential raise in awareness on the subjects of climate and sustainability. How does this tie to the resilience movement? So I think there are a couple of different aspects of that question. I mean, one is about mitigation of a problem or a threat and then adaptation. And I would say, obviously, um, with respect to climate, which is my lens on resilience, there is uh, very much so a growing awareness that we are already into a, a time frame where we need to adapt. And um, the question about resilience as opposed to relief, I think, is another cut on your question. Will philanthropy not only be engaged um, in the response to disasters or impact, but will they think ahead of that about getting prepared and being resilient in advance of the next occurrence? And I think that there is not yet sufficient work by philanthropy to build resilience. It's, it's happening, but there's still a lot of room. One of the challenges is that it requires longer-term thinking. Obviously, if you're just going to respond to a disaster, that is a shorter-term, more immediate uh, more immediate task. When you say that there's always room for improvement, I know you're talking about the preparation aspect, not relief. But from what you're saying, it seems like this hasn't changed a lot. From your perspective, has there been any progress? One of the things that's happened recently that has really uh, improved people's appreciation of the value of resilience and planning is COVID. It's made people understand what happens if you don't have a plan and if you're not resilient. That awareness has, I think, increased the capacity of different institutions, including philanthropy, to invest in more preparedness in general. And that's resilience, right? Resilience is another way of describing being prepared. Yes, a lot of people think resilience is only about recovery, but I'm hearing more and more that being prepared for the worst case scenario is just as important, if not more. I do see that COVID was a real awakening for everyone. Because of COVID, a lot of things changed within our common culture, and some of them seem to have stayed with us. The COVID crisis helped us see where we needed more preparedness, more planning, and more plan Bs. Camilla, is there something a philanthropy might look for when considering where to invest their money? What are the metrics? You know, one of the first metrics that a philanthropy would consider is does the proposed intervention, the strategy, whatever it is you're doing, does it fit with my goals as a philanthropy? So every philanthropy is going to set out for its board uh, a set of targets, of things that they are trying to achieve, specific problems they're trying to solve or to address, and, and maybe even specific strategies that they are going to try and develop and implement. And so the first question is, does this work address the goals and the priorities that I have? Um, does it fit with the foundation objectives? And, um, and then other metrics and targets are going to be about whether, um, whether the project has identified the right strategies to achieve its goal. If you want to work on disaster resilience, are you interfacing with people that have the power to make changes that are going to make a difference. So you have to identify the targets of your work. And you also have to be bringing a new strategy to the table, something that hasn't been, hasn't been done before, um, or 
accelerating or building on an effective strategy. And so there'll be an evaluation of whether or not you have the capacity to reach the audiences that you're seeking to reach and to reach them in a way that will drive the desired outcome. Wait a minute. Why is there even a need for philanthropy when it comes to natural disasters? People's lives are at risk. Shouldn't this be an adequate reason for the government to step in and implement measures to ensure resilience and recovery? Well, it's interesting. I usually face that question from the other side, which is why can't philanthropy solve the problem? Um, I think what we've learned is that for the big pressing problems, you need, again, you need action from all sides. You need collaboration across government, philanthropy, and business. Philanthropy and government don't necessarily have enough funding and the right focus to address these problems effectively. And so the larger drivers of commerce, business, finance, those are really powerful tools. The reason that you need philanthropy as opposed to just purely relying on business or government is because oftentimes both of those groups um, may not be prioritizing the problem that you're trying to achieve because it, the incentives are not there for them. And I think the other thing that philanthropy can do, which is relevant here, is philanthropy can really play a great role in getting new ideas, new programs, new approaches started. In any one area, there's not enough funding to really take something to scale. You need the buy-in of government. You need the buy-in of communities and of businesses. But what philanthropy can do, and the unique role of philanthropy, is to identify something that has not been sufficiently addressed and to seed new ideas and to help get them to scale to a point where perhaps government funding will come in and, and you know, kick it to the next level. What are you most excited for, for the future of philanthropy? I think one of the most exciting developments in philanthropy is the recognition, and this has been a long time in coming, it's not a new idea, but it's finally starting to happen, the recognition that philanthropic uh, foundations have their grant money and they have their asset base, and that the real power of a philanthropy is both. It's to use the full realm of their assets, not just their grant funding. But, you know, foundations also have investment portfolios. And by the decisions they make in their investment portfolios, if they align those where they can with, uh, with the goals of the philanthropy from an impact perspective, they can really reach a level of impact much more quickly, much more significantly than they, than they can just through making grants. And so that's, that's what I'm describing is really impact investing and the idea that you can, within a philanthropy, but also within an investment fund, within other contexts, you can invest for impact that is very well aligned with the types of social and environmental impacts that people previously thought of only in the realm of philanthropy. I think it's very exciting, the idea of using a the full range of a foundation's assets to create change. What are some challenges you face? One of the challenging things if you are looking to connect with the philanthropic sector is to place your intervention, your offering, your value proposition in the context of 
the goals and ambitions of the foundation. And I think that there are a lot of different philanthropic objectives which connect to the notion of resilience and specifically resilience of the built environment. I think that that's relatively new. I don't think a lot of people have really focused on that. So it's an emerging area. It's a new area. But I do think it, it's challenging because it requires you to sort of translate the value of what you're doing into a lot of different communities. What goes through your mind when thinking about how to build more momentum around the development of community resilience? What makes a community resilient? So many different things, right? And they all have to come together. So there is a, there is a definitional challenge here about what your strategy is going to be and what aspect of community resilience you are tying into. Um, but, but I think there are a lot of actors that are thinking about that. And I say actors, not philanthropy, because I'm not sure that philanthropy is really leading. I'm not sure, but when we looked for foundations that have a named program really around disaster resilience, you know, the, the center for disaster philanthropy, which we talked to really talked more about relief. Can you say more about the importance of bringing resilience to the built environment? It's critical to bring the issue of resilience of the built environment into the way that foundations are framing their other priorities. They may not even be thinking about it as exclusively linked to disasters. They're just talking about resilience. They're talking about economic resilience. They're talking about social equity. They're talking about housing. They're talking about, you know, broader programs on community development. And I think then resilience of the built environment becomes a strategy that you fold into those other priorities. So their headline strategy may not be disaster resilience, but disaster resilience is something you need to ensure and to address in order to achieve these other goals. Why? Because we're facing disaster after disaster after disaster. There's no question that the frequency and severity of natural disasters uh, has increased and that the, the impact on communities is no longer something that we can't focus on or only focus on in terms of, of relief. You know, maybe if it only happened truly once every hundred years, you wouldn't have to think so much about resilience because it wasn't going to happen that much. But now we're seeing wildfires, storm events, flooding, and, um, and so this is really something that we know from all the modeling. These things are only going to increase. And so the imperative to be as prepared as possible and as resilient as possible, both, right? You have to have buildings that are more resilient, but you also need the plan of what to do. I guess that people have been relying on their luck. How have you seen COVID change our community for the better? I think that the COVID situation that our country is facing has really terribly painfully driven home what happens when you inadequately address those preparedness and resilience questions. So I hope that we will take the right lessons out of that. I'm certainly seeing a lot of improved appreciation 
being transferred from the COVID situation to climate resilience and climate planning or climate resilience thinking in the sense that different parties that we work with are like investors are now saying, yes, well, maybe we do need to think through a little bit more specifically how we would respond if there were major disruptions in various supply chains because of climate. Institutions are more willing to think those questions through in a more serious way. So is that the silver lining? If there's a silver lining of this terrible and costly experience that we are going through with COVID, it is that we will now appreciate the importance of being prepared before a major disruption and, and also that we realize these kinds of large systemic disruptions, whether they're in the health arena or in natural disasters that affect the built environment, they are coming and they are going to continue to come. And so we have to be prepared in advance and we have to be prepared to recover more quickly because they're not one in 100 year type of events anymore. One last question. What inspired you to get involved in philanthropic investment? I don't think there is sufficient philanthropic investment in this area. That's why I've gotten involved in this. What we've had in terms of buildings is that we want sustainable building design and construction because that's talking about when we build buildings, let's minimize how much impact we have on the, on the environment. Let's source wood in a way that's not going to destroy forests. Let's minimize our use of energy and let's create standards so that our buildings are green. That's great. And we've had great success doing that. What we haven't done as much is think about performance of buildings in the face of natural disasters. We know these disasters are increasing in frequency. We know they're increasing in severity and impact. So we should also be increasing the attention and the funding that we bring to assuring that buildings are resilient. Government buildings, affordable housing buildings, community buildings, residential buildings. We need more focus on that. Evan, there is a silver lining when it comes to natural disasters. Thankfully, Camilla was able to point it out. It's reassuring to know that there are actors other than the government and businesses who are able to collaborate on developing greater resilience. Exactly. Philanthropies and foundations do fantastic work bringing essential resources to communities impacted by natural disasters. Think how much more good those resources will do if they are brought to bear before disaster strikes. Cool. So who's going to be our next interview? We're going to get serious about risk and reliability and learn from Madison Spock, a Southern California attorney, what kinds of exposure building owners have when it comes to public safety in areas with hazards like earthquakes or hurricanes. Great. Looking forward to it. For more resources and information about Camilla Seth and the Finance Hub, or for links to the Resilience Advantage series, check out our website. Thanks for joining me and listening to Making Resilience Cool, a podcast based on the 12-episode Resilience Advantage series created by the USRC with the generous support of Optimum Seismic. Join me next time as I delve more deeply into the incredible archive of interviews from that series with engineers, architects, innovators, business leaders, and community leaders talking about everything you could possibly want to learn about what resilience really means. 
Next episode, I'll be deep diving into the Resilience Advantage interview with Madison Spock, who talks about the laws regarding risk and resilience.